Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers part 3 of his sermon series titled, What Wondrous Love Is This? We'll read verse 1 and then drop down to 31 to 39 again. So I'll give you a moment to join me. All right, Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we desire for you to be glorified We desire to know you. We desire to comprehend your glory. Father, your word here has rich, wonderful truths. Truths that if we comprehend, we will never be the same. That will soar us in worship. That will lead us to live lives of obedience out of gratitude and long to serve you and make your name known. So, Father, what I beg is please come. Please come and speak, O Lord. Speak to us, your people. You've given us your word, and you designed this. We're weak, finite, sinful men. Preach your word, and you give the blessing. So this is what we ask, O God. We are seeking to draw near to you and know you. We're seeking to come and hear your truths. We are aching, longing, hungering for more of your truth so that we can be transformed, so that we can worship. So please, oh God, we pray, give it. I ask that you send your spirit. Please give your spirit to empower, enable, quicken, awaken, give light, oh God. Give us ears to hear that we can understand your truths, O Lord, and then to see the glory of these truths. Your glory 
shown to us through your truths and this amazing salvation that you have created. So, oh God, we pray, come. Ask God for the ability to preach. Please give all the grace that's needed there and all of us, Lord, to worship in hearing. So, oh Lord, we pray, bless us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In the passage, we've noted there are four main truths. Four main truths in verses 31 to 39. We've seen uh, the first of these two. Number one, God is for us, and therefore no one can hurt us. Number two, no one can condemn you if God has justified you. Well, we're ready for this third truth. The third truth is nothing can separate you from the love of God because Christ bought you. Again, we make the distinction in this passage that the, the text is speaking to those who are in Christ, to those who have become attached to God, not by thinking you come up with any of your own ways, but God has made a way on his terms to come and be made right with him. You can come and attach yourselves to him by placing your faith in Christ. If you are in Christ, then these promises are for you. And this particular truth we're looking at, nothing can separate you from the love of God because Christ bought you. It is yours for you who are in Christ. So I want to jump right into the text. I'm skipping an introduction with illustration for the sake of saving as much of my voice as I can. Here's how the text unfolds. Verse 35, ask a question. If you look at it there, there's actually a couple of questions that are asked there. And it's a question that many would find surprising. And so verse 36, the very next one, is meant to further explain verse 35. If you think about it, verse 36 wouldn't have to be there and we would still be able to understand the flow of the passage and the, the reasoning that's being laid out. Verse 36 is kind of a parenthesis in the passage. It's a parenthesis that is further expounding and supporting verse 35. Verse 37 then comes and declares this great and wonderful truth, which is answering the question that is asked in verse 35. And then 38 to 39 come, come at the end here and preach. They preach the glory of these truths. This is what preaching is, by the way. That's what Paul is doing in 38 to 39. Preaching is not just communicating the truth. It is heralding the truth and exulting in those truths. It is showing the weight, the glory, the significance of the truths while the one declaring them is worshiping themselves and trying to bring everyone else to worship by seeing the weight and the glory and the wonder of these truths. That's what Paul is doing in 38 and 39. The spirit inspired, stirred Paul to preach in 38 and 39, the glory, the wonder of this love that is ours in Christ. So we'll, we'll walk through the passage here and I'll show you how it unfolds. The only, uh, the only truth that will be left, left 
after this message will be that in verse 37. That will be its own message. So start in verse 35 with me. Let's walk through the the meaning of the text. He begins by asking this question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? At the very beginning, we have to make sure we understand what is being addressed, what is meant when he talks about the love of Christ. There is a general kind of love that God has for all of mankind, a a benevolent care, a, a creator's compassion that God has on all humans. But we got to be really careful about um, how we talk about this. We've got to be really careful that we not mislead people when we talk about the love of God. So for instance, if we were to just go around and just say the statement, God loves everyone without giving the rest of the story, we would be misleading people. Because that's not the whole, that's not the whole thing. And if you give a half truth as if it were a whole truth, that's deceptive. That's dishonest. Scripture says all over the Bible that the Lord is furious. He is furious with those who reject him. He is angry. He is furious. There is wrath. For all of those who just will not bow the knee to his supremacy, who will not worship him and give obedience. In fact, in Psalm 11, it even says that the man who loves violence, the soul of the Lord hates. Did you know there are verses of the Bible that talk about God hating? And and, and again, uh, uh, this is not the message Uh, that the world wants to think about God. This isn't how the world wants God to be. We're not after that. We're we're not after like, what do we want? What does the world want? How we think God should be. That's not what we're after. We're after who is he? Like, what is his character? Who is he in truth? And so because of these things, I don't believe we're being faithful to scripture. If we begin a a gospel conversation with somebody that is not in Christ and we just begin with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, because what sinner does not hear that and justify themselves and does not use that, that statement to, to bolster their own previously held beliefs of things like God loves me and accepts me just the way that I am, which is not a biblical statement. That is unbiblical. God does not accept us just as we are. We are accepted on the basis of Christ. Who we are in ourselves is not fit. It is not enough. It is not righteous. We must have something done to us. We must be accepted by God on the basis of Christ. And then God begins his transformative work. The message of the Bible is that because of our sin, there is wrath. God is angry at those who break his law and will not bow the knee of allegiance to him. All mankind has broken that law. Every soul at one point is in a place of resistance to God. You're not born a Christian. 
You're not born regenerate and right with God. Every one of us has had a place uh, if you are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ are still in a place where there is a refusal to bow the knee to Christ. We are under his wrath. We are under his anger. All mankind has sinned. The wages of sin is death. What we deserve is an eternal punishment of that wrath. And it is what is coming. If you pass from this life, from this age, and you have never come to be made right with God, you are going to receive the sentence of the eternal curse. The whole point of the gospel The whole point of the gospel is that God in love made a way to show mercy. God made a way for you to be made right with him. And it is through the work of his son. Turn and place your faith in Christ for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, whoever believes in him in Christ will not perish, not eternally perish, but have everlasting life. The love that is being described in this passage is not the general creator's love for all of mankind. The love that is described in this passage is specifically Christ's love for the souls that he died for, the father's love for those he predestined, for his elect, for his sons and daughters, his love for those that he has drawn to himself. If you notice in verse 35, it speaks of the love of Christ down in verse 39. It is the love of God, the Father, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So really critical connection that you need to make here in this passage. If you haven't already, God's love that is described here is his saving love, his saving love for his people, his sons and daughters, which is the highest love that God has for any human. Sometimes people hear that and don't like it, but really, is it that offensive? You know, this is how we operate in this world as well. If you're in this church family, I love you. I love my kids more than you though. Okay. (laughs) Shocker, you know, and I also love my kids in, in a slightly different manner of love. It's slightly a different kind of love. The love that God has for his sons and daughters that he uh, sent his son to bleed and die for. It is a love that exceeds in magnitude of the creator's care that he has for the rest. And it is even a different kind of love. The love that Christ has for us, he has for his bride the love that the father has for his sons and daughters. It is greater in magnitude and of a different kind. And so who, the question that is asked in verse 35 is who will separate us from that love? What situation could occur that would remove us from being under that love? He begins then to list out uh, various fears, various dangers, various threats, various pains, torments, perils. You look at the list there. Seven things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Will these things separate us 
for the love of Christ. Before we begin to answer that with what I hope will be obvious, but it does need to be preached. Something else that we must consider. I want to say something else about the love of God, because if we don't understand this, we'll come to some really uh, wrong conclusions about the love of God. God is righteous. God is holy. God loves what is holy. He delights in what is holy. What is holy is what is good. What is holy is what is beautiful. Guys, a whole lot of the Bible is going to open up to us. A whole lot more is going to make sense to us when, when we believe it down in the depths of our hearts that holiness is beautiful. God delights in what is holy and God's love is holy. And here's why this matters. God loves you, you who are in Christ, but holy love is different from the distortions that sinful men make of love, it is different from a spoiling, <laughs> indulgent love. When a parent breaks the instructions of the book of Proverbs, instructions like spare the rod, spoil the child, instructions like if a man will not discipline his son, he hates his son. That's biblical language. When a parent breaks that instruction and, and will not discipline, they, they love their child only with a kind of um, pandering, spoiling, indulgent kind of love. What happens to the child? We know. We've been in the grocery store with that child. Okay, We know what happens. That child becomes a slave of their own flesh. Because that child is not being taught about how to put their, their flesh to death. That child becomes a, a slave to their pride. Their selfishness goes unchecked. They, they reach a point that they just believe the universe revolves around them. And, and Proverbs says, listen very carefully, Proverbs says that child will end up in hell. That child will end up in hell because that child has been given no framework for comprehending submission, comprehending bowing the knee. And so listen, indulgent love isn't really love. That's why Proverbs says it's hatred. And that indulgent, spoiling kind of love actually harms. It harms. The parent who truly loves their child will discipline their child. And we know the Bible balances this with instructions for fathers not to exasperate. Don't, don't discipline too much or too severely. There's the call for loving patience. We, we know all of that. But the, the, the parent who truly loves their child will discipline, but discipline in the moment does not feel loving. It's a biblical text. But the parent has longer range goals. The, the parent has a, a bigger perspective that the parent is not working for the momentary happiness or the smile, the indulgence of the flesh to just get the toy when they demand it. The parent is working for the greater good to produce something good in the future. Now, Christian, we apply this in eternity to the love of God. The Bible shows us that God loves us and true love is holy love. God is aiming for our greatest good and not our momentary indulgence in our flesh. I mean, we find ourselves, even the Christians, wanting this oftentimes. In our flesh, we just want God to, why don't you just love me by making everything nice? Like just all this stuff that hurts and is in chaos. Like just, just make it all go away. Make it all nice. But ultimately, it would harm us. 
And we need to comprehend that this is the way in which God loves us. So now let's, let's talk about some of these perils here. You notice that verse 36, like I mentioned earlier, it's a parenthesis to the whole passage. Verse 36 wouldn't have to be there in the text for you to understand everything that is coming. So here's why it is there. He's preaching truths and it's possible that someone would come to verse 35 who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will, will the sword, will famine, will nakedness separate us from the love of Christ? It's possible for somebody to read that and go, huh, wait a second. Like I thought we we're talking about God loving us. If we're talking about God loving us, then we don't need to be talking about hunger and difficulty and nakedness because if God loves us, he's going to give us niceness. He's going to give us a, a good, easy life. That's the blessing of God. So do you see the point of why verse 36 is in the passage? Verse 36 is a parenthesis quoting some Old Testament scripture, which is helping us to understand verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hunger, famine, or having no clothing, will that separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 36 comes along and says, because that is the reality of the world. That is the truth, you know. This is the world we live in. And Christian, this has to be addressed. It has to, because from as far back as the book of Job, people have wrongly come to conclusions that good people get good life and bad people get the hard things. God will give you karma, so to speak. Remember Job's friends? Uh, this, is, this is the whole plot line. This is all that's what's happening in the book of Job. Job is a godly man. God allows testing to come into his life and Job's friends show up. Job's friends come and show up and they're operating with this shallow, Bibleless religion. A religion that is just the invention of man. Good people get good life. Bad people get bad things that happen. Job's friends come up. Job, you're suffering so obviously. Tell us what you did, you dirtbag. How'd you, how'd you sin? You did something. Tell us what it is. And, and there's like 35 chapters of Job going back and forth with these friends and Job saying, you know, I'm, I'm not completely perfect, but I have not done something that would warrant this. And they're like, liar, because this is all they can think of. Guys, this comes in the New Testament. The apostles in John 9, they look at a blind man and they ask the question, do you remember this? Master who sinned, this man in the womb or his mother that he was born blind. And Jesus has to correct their theology. We have to understand this truth. We have to comprehend this or we are going to come to some devastating conclusions about the love of God. We will misunderstand it and it'll wreck your faith. It will wreck your faith. So verse 36 it's Psalm 44, verse 22 being quoted, just as it is written, for your sake, this is the people of God speaking to God. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Let me give a bit of a parenthesis here. Verse 36 is a parenthesis in the passage, so let me take a parenthesis in the sermon because this is crucial for us to understand the love of God. This is a cursed world. It's a cursed world. We say it often as Christians, but have you ever noticed that sometimes we say it only theoretically? Like bad things will happen and somebody will ask, you know, why, why, why is this happening? Why all this bad stuff? And we go, it's a cursed world. Have you ever heard that expression? Like I know I've done this in my mind. Uh, why bad things happening? It's a cursed world. Yeah, I know it's a cursed world, but why are bad things happening? Okay, do we need to see the connection? Cursed world means pain, peril, death. We have catastrophic things happen in our lives and we're going, why, why, why is this happening? And, and I sometimes imagine the angels are just pulling their hair out. How many times do you have to hear? It's a cursed world. Our expectations of life have to match that reality. This is a cursed world. Psalm 44, 22 makes clear that God's people will suffer things that verse 35 mention. Christian, do you have a category in your mind to comprehend this? That there are Christians who do go hungry. Do you have a category in your mind for this? There are Christians who, yes, have gone seasons of their life with zero clothing. You need to read about Christians and, and persecution and martyrdom around the world. It happens today. Christians go hungry. But as we say this, there would be some who say, whoa, 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 preacher. Don't you know the Bible says God promises to provide for his people. And to that we say, amen, but we need to talk about that because even this is oftentimes misunderstood. God promises to provide enough, and that's a critical word in itself, enough, enough bread, there's another critical word, before the duration of time that God determines. God promises to provide daily bread, to preserve life for as long as he determines. Your life is in his hand and he chooses for some to live a hundred years and others not to live a hundred days. That is his prerogative. That is his sovereignty. Christians do go hungry. Paul did. Paul did. He talks about it in the book of 1 Corinthians. See, do you understand how we got to have our definitions, right? We got to have our expectations right of the love of God and the promises of God because otherwise it will end in disaster. It will. Okay. Have you ever known someone or heard of someone who falls on some financial hard times and they've got a great big house payment, two new car payments, boat payment, camper payment. They've got all of it. Financial hard times comes and they can't make their payments. And then they begin to doubt their faith. They begin to doubt God because... They thought God promised to provide what they wanted. 
And what it reveals is some misunderstandings of the promises of God. What it reveals is some shaky foundations. So we, we need to settle up those foundations. We need to make sure we understand God has never promised you the house that you want. God has never promised you the vehicles you want. He's never promised you a vehicle. God has never promised you the life that you want or toys of the earth. God has never promised that we can just buy and buy and buy and he'll foot the bill. God's faithfulness, this is, this is a really critical statement, God's faithfulness is faithfulness to his promises, not our expectations. Like I can't come up with what I think God should do and then therefore God is obligated to do what I think he should do. God's faithfulness is faithfulness to the promises that he has made, that he has communicated. We don't get to make up what we want to be true and then God's obligated to live up to what we invent. Christian, this is a cursed world. Bad stuff happens, bad stuff's gonna happen to you. You're gonna suffer. It is part of it. Messed up stuff happens. Job, a godly man, lost almost everything. Job lost almost everything in one day. All of his wealth, all of his herds and his flocks were gone. Houses crumbled, blood ran in the fields and, and Job wept over the bodies of his children in one day. But there's something that Job said on that day. And guys, it is critical. I'm telling you that there is, there is enough theology to meditate on for decades in this statement that Job makes. Job comes before the Lord, falls on his face, and he prays. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Guys, notice a couple things about that. First and most importantly, Job comes and he worships. Because guys, that is the whole point. The whole point in the whole episode, this is the whole point of your life. Will you worship? Will you glorify him? Will you honor him? Satan said to God, you let me touch him. I'll get him to curse you to your face. And God gave permission for Job to be tested. And so Satan unleashed a fury of fire and Job was tormented, but Job comes, falls and bows himself before the Lord and worships. He blesses the name of God. It's the whole point. Will Job bless God? Christian, when you suffer, the whole point, the whole point, the whole point is will you glorify God? Will you bless the name of God? But then notice what else he says, because what he says has theology and it is critical. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. You came into this world with nothing. You literally did not even have a shirt on your back. And you will leave with nothing. You will even leave your body in the ground and you will stand before God. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Everything that you have in this world, you come into it with nothing. Whatever you acquire, 
And that includes loved ones, that includes children, that includes spouses. Whatever good you acquire, understand this, it is on temporary loan from God. It is not yours definitively and ultimately it is on loan and it must be given back. And God has the right to re retrieve it anytime that he wants to. And he has done nothing unrighteous. God has not been unfair. God has not been cruel. God has not been mean. We can't say to God, that's not okay. It's not fair. No, he has the right to take it anytime that he chooses. What Job does is he comes and he throws himself before the Lord and he declares, you have acted righteously. You've done nothing evil. And he blesses the name of God. Whatever God gives you in this life, it is a gift. It is grace. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. He's not obligated to give it. We don't have the right to demand it or expect it. The more spoiled we are, the more we expect that God's supposed to do for me. Do you see the danger of riches? Do you see the danger that living in a place of prosperity can bring? that there are things we think God's supposed to do for me because I say so. I'd love to spend much more time on this. I'll just have to save it for another day, but let's just settle up the foundation and move on. You live in a cursed world. In a cursed world, bad things happen and it's part of it. Being a Christian means that there are additional difficulties that come. Being a Christian means you are opposed to the world and the world is opposed to you. This is the reality. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Christian, you're not too good to die. You're not too important to die early. You're not too important for bad things to happen. For today, evil prevails. That's what this life is. In the next, you will pass into glory. There is the everlasting future of righteousness and joy and glory of God. In 10,000 years from now, we'll look back on this brief little painful life and we'll see it as just a small little blip. But for today, evil prevails. God is going to step in and he is going to set all things right, redeem. But for today, you live in the day of evil. You're going to suffer. And our expectations have to reflect that. The world will regard you as sheep to be slaughtered. End of the parenthesis. Let's come back to the text here. But here's the question. Will those sufferings separate us from the love of God that is resting on us because we are in Christ? The answer, of course, is no. But listen, listen closely. These perils, these pains, these torments, they will not take your salvation away. And they are also not necessarily indicative that God is disgusted with you. They're not an indication that God has removed his love from you. Sometimes that tempting thought can come in in times of trials. We go through a, a season of suffering and, and sometimes the thought can come in. I done messed up so much this time that God is just sick of me. God is just disgusted and he is just scowling and wanting to torment me. And what the passage is showing is these things don't take away your salvation. So we do not need to fear them. They are also not necessarily indicative of signs that God despises you. Verse 37 
I won't preach the whole thing here because we're going to look at it specifically. It comes behind to declare these perils and these pains. They cannot take your salvation away. They have zero power to undo the love of God. In fact, through them, we are more than conquerors. Uh, Jump down to verse 38 where this is picked up again as the love of God is explained and preached further. He says in verse 38, I am convinced... Now, Paul's not saying that, you know, this is his opinion. What he's emphasizing there is that this is what his heart takes hope in. I am convinced my hope is in this. And then he continues down another list of pains, torments, threats, dangers. Now, ultimately, for the child of God, they're not really a threat and they're not really a danger. We're going to learn that they actually serve us but they are painful. And so notice what he lists off here. The first that he mentions is death. For the Christian, death cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. In fact, death serves you. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death has become the door that opens its way for us to enter paradise. Death uh, has been robbed of its venom by Christ. Death cannot separate you. The next he mentions there is life. Now, why would he even say this? You know, if death cannot separate us, why would he even mention life? Well, it could just be that he's speaking poetically and he's just listing off all kinds of things. I I think that there's a point here. Why would life separate us from Christ's love? Well, it is here in this earthly life that the danger lies. All of the tempting, the testing, the, the, the danger, it's, it's all here. There's no danger for the Christian after this. After this, that's the, what we're looking forward to. After this comes the paradise. Whatever, whatever threat or danger exists, it, it's only here. So, Do you ever worry that if you were to live a really long time here, that there's so much danger that that you won't make it? Well, I would say if you were left to yourself, you're absolutely right. But you're not left to yourself. Life does not pose a threat to you because Christ is carrying you. God is clinging to those who are in him. Next, if you continue down, he mentions angels. Angels will not separate you. They do not work against you. And then notice how the text has quite a few of these um, opposites that are mentioned, death and life, angels. And then notice what's the opposite of an angel, a holy angel, principalities. Principalities refers to the ranks of fallen angels, demonic spirits. Remember, the New Testament says that Satan appears as an angel of light. Remember, Paul mentions that Even if an angel were to come and preach to you a different gospel, let that angel be anathema. But the angels of God do not work against you and the fallen angels have no power to take away your salvation. You may find, let me just address this real quick. You may find that very obvious. In fact, quite a few of the things that I'm going to say of potential thoughts and temptations uh, that Christians have, you may find them to be like, why would anybody struggle with that? Well, the answer is someone. And there's probably the case that you have some erroneous thoughts or some tempting thoughts that other people just find obvious and are not difficult at all. 
Every individual has different ways that thoughts torment or plague or tempt them. And even different generations, there have been generations that widespread, they had some thoughts that tempted them that just don't even bother you at all. Paul is addressing here, the spirit is leading him for all time to definitively address the kinds of tempting thoughts that may come. Angels nor principalities can take away your salvation. God's elect are safe. Some have feared that they might be demon possessed and so might deny Christ. No, God's children are safe. They're safe. Notice the next statement there, things present or things to come. All that you have experienced or will experience in this life, none of them will be able to rob you of your place as a citizen of heaven. There is nothing that you will experience if you are in Christ. There is no pain that you will experience that will ever be so great that it will cause you to deny Christ and to leave the faith. God will keep you. Now, so that we're balancing things out and we understand, we know that the New Testament does address those who fall away. And that is some biblical language, fall away. But understand that when the Bible addresses those who fall away, it is not speaking of people losing their salvation, but of those who came to some religion, maybe liked some things about the church, but they were just playing games. They never bowed the knee. They never brought their heart to submit to the Lordship of Christ. If that is the case, if there is any here in my voice and you play in games, you're acting like a Christian, but you are not genuinely trusting him and have bowed yourself down. You do need to fear because you're not okay. You need to run to Christ and truly bow the knee of surrender and submission to him. It's only when you come to him that you are safe. Continuing on in the text here. He mentions one that doesn't have an opposite that's referred to. He says, nor powers. So there is no magic. There is no natural power, physical power, earthly power, supernatural power, or heavenly power that has the ability to sever the attachment that you have to God through Christ. And then he says, nor height, nor depth. It's possible that what the Spirit intends to say here is, regardless of where you are, even geographically, the love of God is unchanging. Psalm 139 says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Sheol is that Hebrew word for the, the grave, the realm of the dead. Jonah found out that even in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the sea, the Lord heard his prayers. Behold, the Lord was there with him. And then notice, notice the last thing that he says, verse 39, nor any other created thing. So that covers everything. Because if it's not God, it was created. So any other created thing will never be able to sever the supply of grace that is coming to you. Listen, Christian, nothing can separate you. You are tethered. 
If you are in Christ, there is a, there is a rope, there is a chain that is attaching you to God. It's an invisible rope. It's constructed in such a way there's no fraying, there's no decaying, there's no, nothing that can cut it. There's no rusting. It is an eternal cable, rope, golden chain, but stronger than the gold on earth. A chain that links you to God and the name of it is the love of God, which is in Christ. You are bound to him. By the way, you are also a created thing. You can't mess this up. You can't sever or separate yourself from the love of God if you are truly in Christ. The love of God for his sons and daughters, it's unchanging, unchanging. One of the greatest truths that you'll, your ears will ever hear is that God is immutable. It's another one of those old words that we don't use very much anymore, but we need to use some more. Immutable. What it means that God is immutable, it means that he is not mutable. <laughs> okay, Mutable um, comes from a Latin word that's related to the word for mutate. God does not change. God is not in process. He's not transforming. He's not growing. He's not evolving. He's not getting smarter. He's not getting holier. He's not getting more loving. Psalm 90, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, that's a really critical statement, and we're going to see numerous more just like it. I want you to hear it again. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, my people, are not consumed. I want you to notice the pattern here. You, my people, you're safe. But why are you safe? You're not safe because of you. You're not safe because you're godly, you're great, you're righteous, you're holy, you're so lovely and wonderful, I just can't help myself. That's not what he says. You're safe because I do not change. The people of God are safe and secure in his love because of something in his nature and what it is in his nature is his faithfulness. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. By the way, doesn't that sound an awful lot like Psalm 90 from everlasting to everlasting? You are God. Jesus Christ has been and always will be divine with the Father from everlasting to everlasting always has been, always will be infinitely holy, infinitely glorious in all of his perfections. God does not change. His justice does not change. His wrath does not change. His nature does not change. His character does not change. And his love does not change. We all know that some have this misunderstanding of thinking that um, God has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You've heard this? Like in the Old Testament, God was kind of grumpy. And in the New Testament, he's lightened up. He's seen the light and he's a lot nicer now. Okay, um, we, we can understand how people come to that, but it is a misunderstanding, okay? R read the Bible all the way through a couple of times. Y you'll see it. It's the same God with the same character. There's grace in the Old Testament and wrath in the New Testament, the wrath of God does not change. The holiness of God does not change. The love of God does not change. Before the world was made, God set 
He set his love on certain ones and chose to save them. And again, this connects with this truth that we keep making. We need to come to where we see this concept of God setting his love as a beautiful thing, as opposed to what sometimes people want to think of God fell in love with me. If God fell in love with me because I'm lovely, I'll mess that up. And then he won't be in love with me anymore. Our hope is in the fact that instead of that, God sets his love on us in spite of who we are. God is sworn to love and therefore save those that he has chosen. God has made solemn oaths and promises. He is faithful. God is faithful 2 Timothy 2.13, notice the pattern again. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see the pattern again? If we are faithless, we're going to have those days. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You, my people, you're safe, but you're not safe because of anything in you. You are safe because of the character of God. God's love for us is rooted in himself and not rooted in our worthiness or unworthiness. God doesn't love you because you are lovely. Despite what the Dove commercial has told you, you are not beautiful, okay? You might be physically beautiful, whatever. When it comes to what matters, in eternity, in the eyes of God. Listen, we, our sin is the very definition of what is putrid and loathsome and disgusting in his sight. And we are filled with it from inside to outside, top to bottom. God did not come and set his love on you because you were worthy or you were lovely. The grace of God is that he has loved us even though we were ugly in his sight and he has chosen to transform us into what is lovely. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. You will be beautiful. You see why the world hates the gospel? There's actually a word in the Old Testament, specific word for this faithful love of God. It's the word kesed. It's used 247 times. It is always in connection with his covenant. Faithfulness to his covenant. Though my people do not deserve it, yet I will be faithful to the love that I have promised them. God is a God who makes covenants with his beloved he enters into covenants, solemn oaths, promises are made. God swears by the holiness of his own name. I will love you. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Do you understand that if God set his love on you and has promised to love and keep you, if even one truly born again Christian from history were to fall away and lose their salvation, God failed and God broke a promise. And he does not do that. God cannot lie. Yes, there are things that God cannot do and rejoice in that. The book of Hebrews says, God cannot lie. His character is a law unto himself. He cannot lie. He will not break his promises. He is 
faithful. Do you see why in marriage we are called to be faithful to one another, to model the gospel, the love that Christ has for his bride? He is faithful. God is faithful. His love is faithful. His love began in eternity past and it is promised into eternity future. If you are in Christ, you are secure. You are eternally secure. But we have to see that our security is rooted in him, his character, his promises, and his sovereignty. Your security is rooted in his sovereignty that before the world was even made, he chose and swore and resolved to do these things. If your security was rooted in your ability to be good, you would mess it up and you would never have security. But our security is rooted in him, that he has a character. Listen, Christian, two words that need to become sweet to your ears. Two words that when you hear them, need to cause a chill to run up and down your spine and just great gratitude to erupt out of your heart. Sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Not mutable grace. The grace that would change all the time and I don't know if it's going to be there or not. Sovereign grace. And not just sovereign justice. Though God has that. His sovereign justice is glorious. We will worship him for his justice, his righteousness, the wrath that he demonstrates. But if that were all there were, you and I would be condemned to hell. Our hope is that God gives sovereign grace. Your eternal security is rooted in this sovereign grace. And because of this Christian, because of the constantness of God's love, this security that we have, this is why we can say with so many passages of scripture, like Psalm 4, 8, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And we can say with Deuteronomy 33, 27, the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. We can say with Hebrews 6, 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast for you who are in Christ. You are safe. Breathe the sweet, clean air of safety. Know that you are secure. Know that you are accepted. Know that you are loved, but not because of you. You're loved because Christ is wonderful. Christ died in your place. And God in his mercy designed and wrote and brought about this plan. Trust him. See that your hope is in him. You didn't save yourself and you also do not keep yourself. You are tethered to him. And if any of you have never turned to Christ in truth, on the terms that God says, and not just whatever you thought would work out, like I'll try to go to church so much, I'll make sure that I pray, I'll do some good deeds, I'll give so much. You can't come to him on terms that you invent. God has set the terms. Here are the terms. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Not, not just acknowledge that he lives, okay? You can acknowledge that a chair exists, but not sit in it. Sitting in the chair is trusting your weight 
to its structure. Trust Christ. Believe and place your faith in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this amazing reality. We are overjoyed by the fact that you love us like this and we want the rest of our lives to be an offering of gratitude, reflection for what you have done. We are thankful. Lord, I pray that you will cause the rest of the work that needs to happen to now occur. Cause the light bulbs to come on. Father, we pray, help us to apply this deeply that we will comprehend the depths, the magnitude of your love and that it will transform us. I pray that we will be people who reflect your love by loving others, by forgiving, loving our enemies, loving our neighbor, that out of gratitude we'll serve and obey. Lord, please bring about the, bring about the ramifications that are to come because of these truths. Help us, Lord. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.